invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians, I mean 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and uh, just let it sit there with, uh, as we get moving this morning. Have you ever had an aha moment when, when maybe, and I, it could be in any number of different areas, um, an aha moment is when you've been doing something and all of a sudden, whoa, how did that, you know, it's that aha, I fully understand or I better understand or more my is why didn't I see that in the beginning? You know, why did that catch that? There, there's lots of different opportunities for aha moments. Uh, back in the 90s and into the early 2000s, um, there, there used to be all of a sudden these pictures that would pop up everywhere. Maybe it was a, a book, you know, with full of these. Some of you probably remember them. They were 3D pictures. Not, not the 3D with the glasses, but it was one of these pictures that you go, you walk up and go, what in the world is that? And then you had to learn. It, it usually started with someone, well, can't you see what's in the picture? And they're like, no. And, and it would be someone trying to then tell you, well, you have to stand back so far and you have to kind of cross your eyes in a weird way and hold your tongue, you know, and, and every once in a while, right? It, you know, that's how you would see, you know, the Statue of Liberty or a bear or an eagle pop out of this picture. The thing is, once you figured out how to do it, you couldn't not see it, right? I mean, it, it all of a sudden became this thing that, that just would happen. And some of you are like, what in the world is he talking about? You'll get it later, kids. Um, I'll have to find one of these pictures sometime. Um, Something similar happened in science a long, long time ago. Uh, as most of us would know, if, if you've ever studied history and science, uh, we once believed, humanity once believed that everything revolved around the earth. It was called a geocentric view. The problem that that figured into it is, is scientists and people that studied these things looked into the heavens and, and tracked the stars and, and other planets that they could see in, in view that it wasn't on a regular basis. Something was wrong. And so uh, there was even, back in the third century, um, an observation by some, some scientists that, well, no, the, the, it doesn't revolve around the earth. The earth revolves around the sun. And it didn't ever happen until the 1500s when Copernicus finally was able to set up and, and change the understanding and it corrected a lot of different things that just didn't fit and weren't just quite right. That understanding that everything revolved around the sun and all the planets and it changed and, and it fixed the, the orbital patterns and all of a sudden gravity came in under understanding and, and, and all these different things came into pattern. And, and what these, these moments of revelation, these aha moments, whether in science or in, in life in general, is what a philosopher Thomas Kuhn would call a paradigm shift. A paradigm shift is, is when there is a fundamental change in approach or your underlying assumptions are all of a sudden changed, that, that you can't see it the way you used to see it. You can't approach life or how you do something 
in the way that you used to because that no longer works. We encounter those things. Maybe it's, or maybe it's better stated that we become aware of those things um, that can change everything at different points in life for us. It can change how we live our life, but also creates this tension in us when others don't act the same or don't act according to that same knowledge that, that we think we have, you know, that we understand that viewpoint. And sometimes it even affects how we relate to one another and how we view one another or even ourselves. In fact, we often judge people according to the various categories that we have set up in our head or certain attributes to that point um, that, we, that we pigeonhole people into those categories. And the problem for us and them at that point is that we can't see beyond those patterns. That we can't see, see people for who they are because we see them as we think they are. And we, Paul would call this a human point of view. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to dive into this letter. And, and we're dealing with this passage starting with verse 16 this morning. Uh, that is toward the beginning of another letter written by Paul to the Corinthian church. And at this time, Paul has... He's, that he writes 2 Corinthians, apparently one of the biggest issues he's dealing with is how he's being viewed by the Corinthian church. Apparently there's some people that they, he, he refers to as super apostles that are telling the church that he's, he's nothing to be listened to, that he's, he's not worthy, and you know listen to us instead. And, and as a result, he is feeling unjustly judged. And so one issue that emerges within the letter is this standing as an apostle. You know, he, he's going to visit, and then he doesn't. And so at this point, in, you know, especially in the ancient church, uh, he, he's not keeping his word, and a person's character is revealed by what they say and what they do. It's no different than us today. You know, if you say you're going to do it, follow through. Uh, and so to the Corinthians, they're trying to match Paul's status as an apostle, which is, has this lofty title, with their experience, and they find it difficult. And so among these other issues, Paul and his readers have a different viewpoint of who he is and his authority and, and what's going on for this church. Uh, and so... To illustrate it, Paul begins to break down, and he gives us two ways of viewing one another. And, the, and he uses an example of Christ. He says, that at, the, at one point, this is how I viewed Jesus. I, I saw nothing special. In fact, he was, a, uh, he was a heretic Jewish rabbi to me. And he was thankfully executed for his sins as a result. You know, Paul says, you know, uh, he also reviewed, his reviewed and viewed his followers, Jesus' disciples, as dangerous subversives who must be stopped at any cost. So Paul says, at one point we judged on the basis of human experience. 
We, we see what we see, and that's all we judge by, and that's what we go by. He says it's a human point of view. And so then something happens, though. There, there's this, this, this something that, that happens that allows us to see Christ, not just as we see in the physical, but as the one whom God reconciles the world to himself. Paul doesn't specify what this something is. For him, maybe it, it, I, I, I kind of think this something that happened with an event just outside Damascus. Where everything changed. His understandings are completely thrown out the door at this event. And for each of us, this event can be different in our own lives. However, the effect is that, that all of a sudden we can experience the presence of God, not from our, just from our own lives and our own experiences, but we can come to view others as God sees them, not just in how we see them. And so when we encounter Jesus in this way, our, our viewpoint should change. And it should change us as, as we understand how we operate in this world. And the thing is, once you experience Jesus in that way, you can't go back to living as if you did it. For Paul, Damascus was a paradigm-shifting experience. That is, the working viewpoint which he evaluated and operated in was dramatically changed. It was forever changed. And after the scales fell off his eyes, he now saw everything differently. So in this passage today, Paul approaches the difference of view by not just going theological, but at the same time going practical. From verse 14 on, he begins to share that the act of Christ on the cross is this reconciling act. And he uses that word over and over. And unless you're an accountant or a bookkeeper, it's not a word we use. It's not a concept that we tend to acknowledge, but the word reconciliation in the original Greek is this word katalage. And it, it, what it means is, is not the accountant style of, of rec reconciling a checkbook, but, but it's this understanding that we make enemies into friends. And it's, it's, it goes beyond just a, a name change or a feeling. It, it would be an example like this. So the king would have some officials, some, some very well-trusted people in his court and they would leave the country and decide to fight to become enemies of his country, their own country. And, and they would go on to the other side. And, and so what would happen is the king could consider this in right, is right to punish these men. You know, even to the point of death, it would be cruel and severe because they were now no longer trusted officials. They were enemies. But what would happen to reconcile that effect is, is that the king would pick some other trusted, honorable officials and he would send them to these now enemies and say, it's all been made right, please come home. That I'm, I'm not just 
making a uh, a judgment. It's 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 not just a uh, arrangement. But please come home because the relationship has been restored. Not because you've done anything, but because I have the power to wipe it away. And that's the special work that God has done. He's restored the relationship and he's now given this ministry unto Paul. And Paul was here now to arrange for people who were once God's enemies to become God's friends. And so there's something important here. We need to understand that in God's view, reconciliation is an already accomplished fact. The old is gone. It's done. It's put away. It doesn't doesn't imply that there's no need for reconciliation to take part on our behalf, but in, in part of God, it's already done. The objective part is done. It's now left for humanity to do the subjective part. To choose, to, to, in the choice to share the message we are given, and the re- able to respond to that fact that we are no longer enemies, but we are friends. The offer's there, and it's, if it sounds like Paul is, is saying, well, in this we need to just grit our teeth and try harder, then we're missing the point. God has enabled Paul to see things differently and now intends for us to see the world in a completely new way. This paradigm shift is, is now in effect. Why? It's not so that our, that our actions could be counted anymore, but it's our actions would stem from this new experience, from this new viewpoint, not from trying harder. This is the reason Paul makes and he speaks about this ministry of reconciliation. It's to proclaim what God has done. The object of God's reconciling work is us. It's his creation. The debt that we owed because of our sin has been wiped clean through God's act. He didn't settle the debt. He didn't take less. He just said, it's gone. He wiped it clean, and that's what, and he's offered us a restored relationship. We are now a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. There's this idea that creation, now in view of Christ, is in this constant state of renewal. The new has come, but it's also still coming, it's still happening. We are part of that new creation. And we're part of that ongoing act that Paul says occurs through Christ who, who restores the break in relationship between the creator and the creation. If we recognize ourselves as a part of that new creation, then we can no longer view one another in the way that we used to. Our vision has to change. Our perspective has to change. Reconciliation is now not simply something to be desired. It becomes this pivotal point, a paradigm shift, because we have now experienced reconciliation. We've been made right in our relationship with the one who's given us new life. And so then, if in this most important relationship, 
It's the most important of all our relationships, the one we have with God. If we can find that our sins are no longer held against us, we are therefore challenged to reach across the boundaries and the barriers that separate us as humans. Whether due to missteps, misunderstandings, misconceptions, and we're to find new ways to renew our relationship as a part of this ongoing act of recreation. So this ministry of reconciliation that Paul writes about in verse 18 has its social setting in the midst of us. In the midst of an environment that is centered around the family or friend where there has now been a restoration of a broken relationship, the possibilities are endless. It doesn't have to be the way it used to be because God has done the work. It's done. It is finished. It is accomplished. The choice is do we live into this new understanding or do we try to operate off the old? Do we try to live in the old way of this versus that? You is this, I'm at that. And we judge according to that. Or we do, do we now live into the understanding that you have been set free? All things are new. Even the relationships that we have. That we're not to hold the judge as in jury position. So this ministry of reconciliation is all about that and where we can now and should get beyond what has been done to us because what God has done for us. And as much as Paul desires the Corinthian church to be reconciled to God, we need to understand that he's also earnestly yearns because he has a special affection for the Corinthian church that he would have a reconciliation between them and him. That they could get beyond these old viewpoints. It's not two separate issues. It's the same thing. Because Paul recognizes that what goes on in our human communities. And how we relate to one another. Has implications how we relate to God. It's not just about us. And it's not just about God. It's about how we understand ourselves in relationship with God and with one another. They're, they're, they're linked in a way that can't be pulled apart. They're all the same. And so as believers, we're now agents. We're agents. We are ambassadors, if you look at verse 20. To bring reconciliation to all spheres of the world. All aspects of the world are now in our grasp to make, to be change agents, to be ambassadors of the king. Every day as we go out to do our work, we're to be ministers of reconciliation. And this includes three different ways of reconciliation between people and God. That's evangelism and discipleship. We're to be agents of reconciliation between people and people that we would help in conflict resolution. And we're to be agents that are ambassadors of Christ between people and the work. That we would help people understand that what we do matters. So what does that mean? What does that really mean for, for you and me? Is it just a title? Or is it something that we are called and we can't get away from? Well, there are three essential uh, elements 
to this work of reconciliation. First, we must understand accurately what God, what has gone wrong among people, God, and creation. If we don't understand the ills of the world, if we don't understand, uh, then we cannot bring genuine reconciliation any more than an, an ambassador can effectively represent one country to another without knowing what's going on in both. We need to be students of our, of our culture so that we can better understand. And we must understand the devastating effect that sin in every aspect brings. Second, we must love other people and work to benefit them rather than to judge them. Well, those guys, those guys are creations of God as well. It says, Paul tells us in verse 16, we regard no one from a human point of view. <clears throat> that is, we do not regard them in a place that we can, they are an object to be exploited, eliminated, or praised, but instead they are a person that Christ has died for. Amen. If we condemn the people in our lives or withdraw from them, you know, from the daily places of life and work, we are then regarding people from a human point of view and they become objects to be used. But if we love the people we work among, if we choose to love them and to show God's love and we try to improve the places that we encounter them, then we become agents of Christ's reconciliation. Finally, being a part of God's creation requires that we must remain in fellowship with Christ. Not just in fellowship, but in constant fellowship with Christ. If we do these things, we become in a position to bring Christ's power into the situations and relationships that we have. And we can reconcile the people, the organizations, the places, and the things of the world that they can too become a part and an understanding that they are part of this new creation. Because we believe that when Jesus saves us and, he, and his Holy Spirit enters into our hearts and our lives, it's a life-altering change that takes place. A new life has been formed by the Creator, which is now being nurtured by the Holy Spirit. And if you're discouraged at how little fruit is coming in, in your life or that the little of change, then we need to not look at ourselves. We need to look to the Creator. We need to look to Jesus. He has put his life within you. He set you on a new course. The choice is whether you want to obey that or not. You've been changed on the inside. Now cooperate so that that inside change begins to affect and alter the outward life that you live. It's a process. It takes time. But the creative work of the Holy Spirit has begun. We can't go back to life as we used to. Because if we've experienced God's reconciling act, and we have received that forgiveness, then we can't continue to live like we haven't. Life as we knew it has changed. And regardless of how the rest of the world around us acts according to the old knowledge, they can't change the fact that we have experienced something new. And so we carry a message. 
We carry a message not that we are higher than thee, that we are, are better than anybody else, but we carry a message that if God can change me, he can change anyone. And Jesus can rescue and renew anyone because there is hope in Jesus. And as recipients of that hope that God has now delegated you and me. I want you to understand this. God has delegated you and me into a role where we are all ambassadors in Christ. That we all it's not just a title, but it's a verb that's something to be done, that we carry a message. An ambassador in a, in, a foreign, in a country's foreign service lives in a foreign country. We've talked about this. We're resident aliens. That, but that, that he is charged with clearly communicating the country's, his own country's message. An ambassador cannot operate in silence. It is in a constant, but is in a constant voice who bears the message of their king. And while we may not be foreign missionaries like Paul, representing that represented Jesus abroad, we are very clearly Jesus's personal representatives in the neighborhoods and in our workplaces and in our schools and in our families. We have a job to do. We're there to convey and to share the good news that Jesus loves them, that God has a purpose for them, that it doesn't have to be a hopeless situation, but that they can understand freedom and forgiveness and grace. And we do this under God's authority. It's a delegation of love and authority and message that Jesus has given us. In John 20, he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I send you. In Matthew and Luke, he says, he who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me also rejects him who sent me. And then in John 13, I tell you the truth, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Are you getting it? Your agents. Not like Bond, James Bond. But you are agents of Christ. You have been given a task. You have given a part in the work of recreation back to as God intended it in the beginning. Perhaps you would rather be quiet rather than take upon yourself that kind of a title and a responsibility. But understand, if we remain quiet, then the kingdom of God has a faithless representative in our workplace, in our family, and in our community. We cannot authentically bear the name of Christ unless we're willing to represent him as his ambassadors, even if we feel inadequate to the task. The work has been done. The task has been completed in the grand scheme of things.
But whether we choose to live into it is a daily decision. That we would pick up our cross daily and follow Christ. That we have been given the task. The, the forgiveness has already been offered. It's already been completed. It's just a matter of are we willing as well, not just to receive God's forgiveness for us, but are we able and willing to live into the truth that that means that we have to forgive others. Because it's impossible to receive the forgiveness of God and yet refuse to forgive others. God has done an amazing thing in the cross. And we celebrate that today. As our ushers come forward, we're reminded that in the same night that our Lord was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant. <coughs> In my blood, which is poured out for you, do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. May we come before God in true humility this morning and in faith as we take part in this holy sacrament. We do ask that you would hold the elements until we can partake of them together. And I invite you in this time to, to reconcile the fact of where you stand before God. And maybe this song, as, as uh, the ushers pass out the elements, will help you understand a little bit more of what God has done.